0: This episode of The Outside Podcast is brought to you by Saris, maker of indoor trainers, power meters, and bike racks. It's a company of cyclists, making products they themselves want to use. Products like the Cyclops H2 and M2 Smart Trainers. The H2 and M2 are the second generation of the Hammer and Magnus indoor trainers, with better power accuracy and a more realistic ride feel if you pair them with Ruby or Swift training software. There's also a new headless mode that allows you to train without connecting to a computer. Not only that, but it basically looks like the trainer version of a stealth bomber. But Ceres isn't just about state-of-the-art technology. Since 2012, Ceres has also partnered with World Bicycle Relief, whose mission is to help those in
1: need by eliminating transportation barriers. Two things that are really important for us are our kids and bikes. We spend a lot of our energy uh, trying to figure
0: out how to help both. This is Chris Fortune, co-founder of Ceres. Recently, Chris launched a fundraising campaign that raised enough money for World Bicycle Relief to build over 240 buffalo bikes, specially designed bicycles that are built to handle big loads and tough roads. Chris and his son went to Zambia to help hand them out. The
1: target um, for us was girls that are traveling long distance to schools, and how do we provide them transportation via the bike to get home from home to school in a way that gives them a better opportunity.
0: With the help of partners like Saris, World Bicycle Relief has built thousands of Buffalo bikes. In Zambia alone, they're donating
1: 4,000 of them.
0: You know, the images still
1: stay with me. You know, how much opportunity there is still to
0: help. This winter, Saris is part of the Ride On for World Bicycle Relief presented by Zwift, a global 24-hour virtual fundraising ride. But if you want to participate, you'll need a smart trainer. And for that, Sarah's has you covered. Details at worldbicyclerelief.org. Hey everybody, I know you already know the drill, so I'm going to take as little time as possible with this. We have a survey for you, because we want your feedback on the show, and it's been a long time since we've asked for it. It'll really help us if you go take it. It's at surveynerds.com outside. And I'm told it's us and the folks who built the survey who were the nerds, not you guys. Surveynerds.com outside. It's your chance to chime in and help us figure out where we're going. So thanks. From Outside Magazine and PRX. This is The Science of Survival. <laughs> if we're talking about wildfires, and I ask you, what's the most important U.S. state to talk about? There's a good chance you'd say California. It's hot, it's dry, there are people in harm's way almost everywhere, and it's the fifth largest economy in the world. You don't want that to go up in flames. And At the moment, it is. But allow me for a second to make the case for Florida. Florida is the most lightning-prone state in the country, so there are a lot of fires. But unlike California, basically none of them get out of control. This is partly because Florida is so humid that fires burn really slowly, but also because something happened over 100 years ago that changed the shape of Florida's relationship with fire. And here to tell that story is Kevin Hires, wildland fire scientist with Tall Timbers Research Station.
2: Yeah, Tall Timbers Research Station is a a, a old venerable uh, nonprofit here in Tallahassee, Florida.
0: It's a story that starts with the founders of Tall Timbers, Herbert Stoddard and the brothers Roy and Ed Kemerick, who really
2: were uh, the brain trust when it came to to thinking about why we might want to set the woods on fire to meet uh, objectives for wildlife management, uh, rare species, and, it, and really sustaining fire dependent forests like the longleaf pine forest native here in the southeast.
0: Okay, it's the turn of the century in Thomasville, Georgia, which is right by the border with Florida. At the time, it was as far south as you could go on the railroad, which means that at the end of the 19th century, Thomasville and the Florida panhandle were attractive destinations for folks with money.
2: And so a number of you know, wealthy industrialists from the north uh, would vacation in the Thomasville, Georgia area. And uh, and quail hunting was one of the, the things to do.
0: Problem was, just as people were coming south to hunt quail at the turn of the century, that's when Gifford Pinchot and the rest of the Forest Service started suppressing fires in U.S. forests, which we've talked about in the last two episodes.
2: And... After a couple of years of very concerted efforts by the U.S. Forest Service and state fire agencies to reduce that open burning tradition, quail numbers began to plummet. And so the the plantation community, quail hunting plantation community, got together and hired Herbert Stoddard in the 1920s to understand why quail were in decline. And having grown up in Florida and the rural culture of, of open range burning, he instantly recognized that the habitat was changing and the practices of, of you know doing these, these open burns was uh, the culprit.
0: Quail depend on fire. Or rather, they depend on the kind of open, grassy forests that wildfires produce. Bringing back fire brought back the quail. And so
2: that was the birthplace, not only of controlled fire, prescribed fire, the concept, but the birthplace of fire ecology as a discipline.
0: Today, unlike the rest of the country, where forests are densely packed with highly combustible brush and fuels, thanks to these wealthy hunters who just wanted to shoot a few birds in between their afternoon whiskey, their evening mint julep, the southeast, and specifically Florida, is the one place in the United States where fire has never left the landscape. There have been burns every year, all the time. It's just part of how things are done down there. And that makes it interesting to science. Well, so why don't you, if you could start um, just kind of like explaining why you went to Florida and and what was going on.
3: I went to Florida because I've been reporting on wildfires for, I mean, I don't know, they've been a, Part of my life since I fought fire as a, in college. And,
0: this is former Outside fan editor fan Kyle Dickman, who writes a column now for Outside State. Online called The Future of Fire. He went to Florida this spring for a Tall Timbers event.
3: They were holding sort of a consortium of fire experts, specifically prescribed fire experts, from all over the country, and the, and it, the idea is that they all come together and sort of swap ideas. Ever since they
0: basically saved quail with fire, Tall Timbers has been telling people about it, and gathering together groups of fire scientists, researchers, and land managers to figure out how to get more fire on the landscape across the entire country. So every year, they get together to look at how fire works, and how it moves. The day that Kyle was there, there were about 70 people crowded around a half acre of land, watching flames creep along the forest floor.
3: There was a drone that was flying around with filters in some, filters in a vacuum and the vacuum would suck in air and there was a guy like, they had this guy from, I don't even know where he's from, but he had some device that measured wind speed at different elevations and he'd taken it from the wind turbine industry and they were looking at um, how How the actual rising heat of the fire affects uh, um, convection, how it how it changes the way wind moves through the forest, and what's the wind look like at the at the level you know ground level? What's it look like at 15 feet above the you know above the ground, and what's it look like above the the canopy of the forest? um, So they were looking at all sorts of stuff.
0: Every year, they gather more and more evidence that fire helps the forest clean itself out, rebuild, and stay healthy. For example, on this piece of land that they were burning, the soil was basically sand, and plants shouldn't have been able to grow very well. But because it's had regular fire, there are as many as 50 species of plant per square meter. It's actually some of the most biodiverse soil anywhere in the world.
3: There's this researcher in Florida who's like, fire is, to the forest, exactly what water and air is.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. Just part of the, like, like totally necessary, is like what he's saying.
3: Totally necessary if, well, to maintain a system as, you know, the system looks.
0: If you talk to fire people, pretty much everyone agrees that the thing that America's forests need in order to be safe from wildfire is more fire. But before we really get going here, I should note that you can't just burn everywhere. There are places where the terrain is too steep to adequately control intentionally set fires. There are also places where, historically, forests didn't burn all that often, so setting fires wouldn't be restoring any kind of previous equilibrium. But guys like Kevin Hires and the rest of the fire community say that even taking all that into consideration, the wildfire problem in the West is so solvable that it makes more sense to look at it as a political problem rather than a scientific one. You say the Western wildfire problem is a political problem. What do you mean by that?
2: Well, I think we started this with the premise, uh, maybe we'll explicitly state that that America needs more fire, not less. And there's only two ways to get it. You can let it burn or you can set it. And when you start with that clarity, the Western wildfire problem is a, is a hundred-year problem of trying to ignore the fact that we have to have fire in our forested ecosystems. The way that it burns now uh, follows a, a, the rule of years. You know we've had a hundred years to create a mess and it's probably going to take a hundred years to get out of it and and it this over the last hundred years we've got you know a, a culture that has lost the understanding of how we 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 use fire in a in a forested landscape we have a a regulatory scheme that that inhibits our ability to get fire back into a landscape we have inherent risks um you know to both Individuals, uh, as well as organizations that are trying to reintroduce fire, and uh, and and you know, we've lost that ability to 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 really burn our way out effectively. And so, the Western wildfire problem uh, is 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 really one of of culture and, and
0: and human development. Today on the show, we're going to take a look at what barriers there are to burning our way towards a solution. All the reasons we aren't doing more prescribed fires. If the science is mostly settled, where do we go from here? And why aren't we going? What does the future of fire look like?
3: Yeah, it's like a simple thing except that it isn't. You know? It's it's like like Kevin Ayers and those guys are just absolutely right that like the silver bullet here is more fire, but that like how do you actually get more fire on the ground? And that's where it gets complicated.
0: To get our heads around how complicated the wildfire problem is, let's look at some of the numbers. To do that, we're going to talk to Ray Rasker.
1: Uh, my name's uh, Ray Rasker. I'm Executive Director of uh, Headwaters Economics, uh, a nonprofit uh, think tank and research group in Bozeman, Montana.
0: I called Ray up because, among other things, his firm works to help wildfire-prone cities and counties prepare for wildfire. And as part of his work, he looks at the data behind how much and where we're spending money on them.
1: Well, we started by looking at the costs. And if you look at um, the Forest Service, the BLM, and other federal agencies, in the 1990s, on average, uh, wildfire um, fighting uh, used to be about a billion dollars a year. Uh, And in the 2000s, it's risen to, on average, about $3.7 billion a year so. Almost a fourfold increase. If
0: you want to know where the extra $2.7 billion is going, Ray says it's basically because fires used to go out, and now they just don't. At least not until the end of the summer. Fires are now twice as large and last twice as long. The Forest Service is also spending a lot more on aircraft, which they bring in to try and save people's homes. And a lot more homes are burning. Since 1910, the U.S. has lost about 35,000 homes to wildfire, total. That averages out to less than 400 a year.
1: But recently that's gone up. And you know, in the early 2000s it was something like 2,300 a year. Uh in the last 7 years it's been about 4,300 a year. And Ray says
0: it's going to get worse.
1: Right, yeah, you look for example in in California, Oregon and Washington Uh, Since 1990, 60% of all new homes built in those states have been built on fire-prone lands. Um, You know, in the West right now, about half of the population lives on fire-prone land. And with more and more people living in the woods, um, you also have more ignitions. And most fires, over 80% of fires, are started by, by people. So this could get yet many orders of magnitude worse than it is now.
0: What it all adds up to is a bunch of land managers, forest rangers, and firefighters who can't afford to do any more prescribed burning or fuel treatments. They're out of money from all their firefighting.
1: fighting. Fighting fires is now 50% of the Forest Service's budget, which means there's less money for campgrounds, for recreation, for, for research, um, and even less money for vegetation management. Um, You know, if if trends continue very soon, it could be the entire forest service budget could be devoted to wildland firefighting.
0: So with a growing consensus that the key to ending the annual megafire Mm -hmm. devastation is to do more prescribed burning and thinning of fuels, but with most agencies unable to afford it, how do we pay for more prescribed burning? And how much would it actually cost? To find out, I called up Timothy Mayle from the Environmental Policy Innovation Center. And you go by Timothy?
4: I go by Tim, but uh, if I say Timothy, it's often easier to get people to hear it. Okay. Just Tim is fine.
0: Yep. Tim says that according to the best available science, in order to make a dent in American wildfires, we need to treat about half of the nation's forests, which is about 50 to 80 million acres. And it costs between $300 and $1,000 per acre to treat those forests.
4: You can put those numbers together and you could say, well, if we had 10 to $12 billion to put into forest management today, you could dramatically change fire risk. And it's not just a one-year benefit. It's a 10 or a 20-year benefit. It depends on the, you know, the forest that you're in, how fast it
0: grows in part. So if we need to treat about half of all the forests in the U.S. to see real results, and that costs 10 to $12 billion, where do we get 10 to $12 billion? Well, Tim says we get it at the same place that the government usually gets money, from the private sector. They loan it to us.
4: And there's lots of reasons to think the private sector would do that. The first is that um, private funding sounds new to a lot of people in conservation or government, but we do it all the time.
0: War bonds, water bonds, municipal bonds, these are all purchased by the private sector. And then the government pays them back at a later date with interest. We've been doing it forever.
4: So there's the idea that the private sector would put money into public policy goals is, sounds new, but it's actually really routine and boring. Um, and, and no one wants to learn about municipal bonds. But they're this amazing tool that, that provides you know, basically a $100, $200, $300 billion of liquidity for government across the country to do things all the time. And they're really good when you, you want to get a bunch of money today to create benefits that pay off over a long term.
0: Long-term payoffs are really the name of the game when it comes to the wildfire problem, because it was the promise of short-term benefits that got us into this mess. And while there's no model for building a system of bonds that pay back investors when a forest gets thinned out, Tim says that a couple of groups are in the process of inventing one, called a forest resilience bond. The idea behind a forest resilience bond is that if the private sector puts up a bunch of money to manage the forest, there's an economic benefit to that management. And if that benefit can be measured and quantified in a way that all parties agree on, they can figure out how much to pay back on those bonds.
4: They're trying to figure out a way to get a whole bunch of different payers to join together and agree to repay a bond if they can prove that they've changed fire risk and changed water benefits of a, you know, of a well-managed forest.
0: The exact terms of how you measure the public benefit and how much that benefit is worth are still being decided. But the basic concept is fairly conventional. Put money in now, get more money back later. In the meantime, fire crews use that money to reduce wildfire risks. But we're still probably years away from getting money from the private sector at a scale that's gonna make a difference nationally. In the short term, however, we have the fire fix, a piece of legislation that basically allows the Forest Service to pull wildfire money directly from the US Treasury when wildfires get really expensive. Instead of from its own budget, so it basically gives them more money to spend before they start dipping into their own coffers, yep
4: and it and it should make a difference it's probably it probably makes a billion dollar a year difference uh at least for a handful of years um it, it won't last forever, but it but it should bring more money uh to the table for dealing with wildfire suppression costs and also more money to to manage forests to try to reduce you know severe fire risk
0: but when the firefix bill passed earlier this year. It included two riders that have some environmentalists concerned. The first was a provision that said that forest-thinning projects under 3,000 acres didn't have to go through the kind of lengthy environmental review that has been a huge hindrance to prescribed burning in the past. As long as the goal of the project is thinning fuels that contribute to fire danger, projects can move forward. Some critics say that that creates a loophole that could endanger old-growth forest and add up to a lot of acres getting logged without any environmental review. The other problem is more complicated, but it boils down to being a way to delay protections for endangered species when they're added to the list. The firefix bill allows small logging projects to be approved, even in habitat with newly endangered species in it. So it's tough, because it's a situation where in order to benefit the forest, you might actually need to weaken environmental regulations.
4: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think in Everybody talks about a slippery slope. You know, you let one thing through and you're on a slippery slope. I don't know how often that's really true. You know, at any scale, people always deal with exceptions, right? There's always no rule is ever perfect for all situations.
0: So with the firefix legislation freeing up the Forest Service's budget for actual forest management and fire bonds promising to provide a lasting source of funding going forward, we should be able to start paying for prescribed burns and ramping them up, right? Well, it's not that easy. Because burning is even more complicated than funding. It's like waiting for the stars to align.
3: I did this story about this this, this guy who works at Sequoia National Park. He was the burn boss down there. He spent 10 years trying to get to, to burn something like 1,000 acres. 10 years, which is an awfully long time. I mean, how many acres burned in California in the same 10 years that this guy was trying to burn a 1,000 acres? In order to light a prescribed
0: fire, you have to make sure that it's not going to burn out of control. That means thinning the forest with chainsaws and scraping fire lines in the dirt so that the fire will end where you want it to end.
3: And then you get approval from the EPA and you get approval from air quality boards and you get approval from whoever, you know, the the top dog is in your, in your agency to do these burns and then you wait and you wait and you wait until you have the perfect conditions.
0: You need the humidity to be high enough that the fire won't burn too fast and you need personnel in all the right places to monitor and control the fire and you really really need the wind to be coming from a direction that won't blow smoke into nearby towns.
5: So the predominant pollutant of concern in smoke is something called PM2.5, which is particulate matter of 2.5 microns in diameter or smaller. So these are really, really small particles. And all of the research recently is showing us that um, this particular component of smoke is worse than we really thought. This
0: is Dr. Liz Walker, toxicologist who runs the Clean Air Project up at the Metau Valley in
5: Washington State she says that wildfire smoke has health effects that we don't even fully understand yet like and and those those health effects include things like you know sort of the obvious irritants of smoke uh eyes uh, nose starting to run throat hurting headaches um there is some cognitive effects people will start to complain about uh, not being able to concentrate um and then, we you know, things like uh, exacerbation of existing disease or uh, illness, uh, like asthma. Basically, when you're breathing smoke, everything wrong with the body gets worse.
0: Which is maybe not so bad if you're young and healthy, but really dangerous if you have heart or lung issues. So wood smoke, whether it's from a wildfire or a prescribed burn, or even a fireplace, is not just unpleasant, it's profoundly unhealthy. But then, that's the thing about smoke. It doesn't matter if it's from a wildfire in August or a prescribed burn in February. It's all smoke, right? Well, it turns out that we don't know the answer to that. Dr. Walker hypothesized that controlled burns at lower temperatures and higher humidities might actually be worse for human health because wet fires are more smoky. And that's one of the things that researchers at the Tall Timbers event were looking into. But so far, there's no clear evidence either way. What is clear is that it's better for everyone if smoke doesn't intrude on a town. But then, that has to be balanced with the need to do fuel reduction so that a wildfire doesn't come barreling down
5: Main Street. It's a tricky thing to get right. What I do think is really important is that communities aren't told to just shut up and put up with smoke. Dr. Walker
0: says that what she wants to see is funding going to projects that might mitigate the effects of smoke. Whether that's public information systems that let people know where and when it's gonna be smoky, or respirators for people who have to be outside. Or even clean air spaces like gymnasiums with filters set up so that people know they have a place to go where they can breathe. But even she says that perfect weather windows with the right amount of uplift and wind from
5: the right direction, they're really hard to come by. Sometimes you have to burn. And I think in those instances, what is really important is to track how that smoke is impacting the community. Some of the things that we've suggested be implemented here are a broader network of um, instruments that can look at where the smoke is going and how heavy it is so that there's a data-supported assessment of just what's happening with that smoke. Um, Another thing that we've asked for and will continue to ask for is a dedicated way to have smoke complaints called in so that the burners are um, asked to be accountable and responsive to the impact that the smoke's having on the community. In
0: other words, if the only choice is when these communities get smoke, not if, Walker wants to keep track of how much they're getting and give people someone whose job it is to listen to their complaints. And she's just one person in one community, but there are similar things going on in other towns throughout the West. It's a slow acceptance that fire is both the problem and the solution. Here's Outsides' Kyle Dickman again.
3: I think that, you know, like, like in terms of land management and fire's role in the landscape, we're in, we're in the midst of, I think, a sea change in, in terms of how, how we're thinking about it.
0: Whole states are changing the way they look at fire. This year, the state of Oregon is relaxing its air quality standards in order to be better able to intentionally light fires. And just a few days ago, California passed a bill that pushes forward plans for prescribed fires on private and federally owned land. There are similar plans in Montana and parts of Colorado. But what if we changed the way we look at fire completely? Last year, 12 million acres burned in uncontrolled wildfires, and we called it one of the worst fire seasons on record. But historically, the Forest Service thinks that 15 to 20 million acres was an average fire season. So what if, instead of the worst, 2017 was one of the best fire seasons on record,
3: and so and 12 million acres burn, and then, and then like, we all hyperventilate and say it's you know this is the worst thing that's our forests or we're losing our forests and they're all dying, but you know, that's not that's not really the so case.
0: It's almost like we could we could accomplish a little bit of what these prescribed fires are, are are trying to do by just being almost flipping our our the way we're looking at it as like. Like, oh, only 12 million acres burned. Yeah, I like that. And next year when it's 20 million acres, you'll we'll be like, yes, like 20 million acres burned that don't have to burn again for a while.
3: Yeah, I mean, that's awesome. That, that would be great. But I think then once again, you have to convince the public or you or, you know, me or anybody sitting in Seattle just like huffing smoke right now that, that like this is, we're okay with that. And that's a big thing to ask an asthmatic
0: So where do all these baby steps forward leave us? It seems pretty clear that there will soon be ways of funding more prescribed fires, and that those fires are seen as important enough to warrant some environmental deregulation and problem smoke, because they serve the greater good. What's not clear is how effective these fires will actually be in a changing climate. Nature isn't just a machine that's fixed once everything is put back the way it used to be. Early this year, Cal wrote a piece looking at what's happening in Bandelier National Monument in New Mexico, where forest fires throughout the 2000s have killed off large stands of trees. Where there used to be ponderosa pine, now there's just brush and shrubs. And now the climate may be too dry for those trees ever to reestablish. They may not ever come back. And there are similar things happening throughout the Southwest.
3: Basically, what we're seeing now is, is like... We're sort of seeing like a reordering of all these these systems, like these forest systems in America, and like um, fire is in in many in many cases it's the agent of that change. And so like you know the climate is dry and the climate is warming, and in, you know, certainly in California and um, and these these systems might be going away anyways. You know like even if you didn't have these fires that were just ripping through you know 100 hundred and two hundred thousand 200 thousand acres of of timber like what what happens to that those woods in 50 years if they can't survive a 4 to 5 degree temperature increase
0: so it's like you say fire is an agent of of climate change and the agent of of the reshaping of our landscape it also happens to be the best defense for the parts of it that might survive
3: yeah i mean right isn't that crazy <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah. We started off on the idea that prescribed fire was a kind of silver bullet to the wildfire problem, that we could burn our way out of this mess. But that's not exactly what it is. It's actually more like a drug, a medication, not a cure. And we don't know how it's gonna interact with every ecosystem. Like the early days of a lot of supposedly cure-all medications, there are gonna be side effects, and it's gonna take a while to get the treatment right. But if you understand prescribed fires, It's at least a silver lining to all the terrible wildfire news. In general, land that burns once doesn't have to burn again for a while. Of course, that's a little comfort if it's your land, or your house, that burns. That's next time. This piece was written and produced by me, Peter Frickreit with music by Robbie Carver. It was brought to you by Saris, a company of cyclists who make gear they want to use. Get more information about the ride-on for World Bicycle Relief at worldbicyclerelief.org. Thanks to Kyle Dickman. His column is The Future of Fire, and it's outside online. His book about the 19 hotshot firefighters who died in the Yarnell Hill fire is called On the Burning Edge. This episode of The Science of Survival is supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science, technology, and economic performance And prescribed fires. More at sloan.org. The Outside Podcast is a production of Outside Magazine and PRX. We'll be back in two weeks with the final episode in our wildfire series.